I've kind of flipped the starting position on its head, whereas, you know, previously it was, okay, let's do physical uh, motor skill development and, and teach them tactics and then they will find sport and then they will love sport. And I actually think that um, that's the wrong starting point. The starting point is about, as you say, matching the task or the, or the activity to the learner and giving them that entry point that fits their current level of ability, whatever that level of ability is. So we're not trying to lift young people up to a, a sort of a competency, proficiency level and then transition into activity. We're letting the activity hook them in and become the thing that they want to do so that they then practice it, which would lead to motor skill competence and all the other stuff. So it's the starting point in the cycle. I think that's crucial here. And um, to engage young people, we have to meet young people at, at their level, you know, where they're at. everyone and welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. If you are a returning listener, I really want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. If you are a new listener, thank you for taking a chance on my podcast. I really do hope you find value in it and come back to listen to future episodes. The whole idea behind my podcast series is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen field, whatever that field may be. Whether it be through sport, art, writing, or research, each guest that I have on my show has deeply dedicated themselves to learning as much as they can about their craft in order to make a difference in the world in their own unique ways. My guest today is Dr. Justin O'Connor. I first met Justin five years ago when we were both featured presenters at the yearly conference for the Australian Council for Health, Physical Education and Recreation in Melbourne. Justin was actually one of the first guests that I ever had on my podcast And it's been great to stay connected with him since that time. He has really been a go-to person for me when I have had questions that I am exploring about my own teaching practice and the work that I'm doing training physical education teachers from around the world. Justin has research experience that utilizes systems thinking, social ecology, and strengths-based approaches to explore curriculum and pedagogy associated with health, physical education, sport, and lifetime physical activity. He also has an interest in social justice within education and sports, as well as informal forms of participation in movement. Justin's research focuses on transforming existing community sport towards more inclusive practice and progressing alternative informal forms of participation in both community and educational settings. His two significant research questions ask, how can we reimagine policy and practice within community sport and physical education so they open to a wider range of informal participation types with global implications for health and inclusion? The next question is, how might we challenge sporting and physical education contexts 
to better recognize and reflect our diverse society. His work is really interesting, and in this episode, we not only discuss his research, but dive deeply into a chat about autonomy, differentiation, assessment, and curriculum, and some key ideas that teachers might consider when planning for the most meaningful experiences possible in physical education. I always enjoy my chats with Justin and am very happy to have been able to capture this one on my podcast. You can connect with Justin on Twitter at Justin O'Connor. That's J-U-S-T-E-N-O-C-O-N-N-O-R. And you can read his excellent blog at healthphysicaleducation.blogspot.com. I really do hope you find some value in this discussion. And with that, let's jump right into my chat with Dr. Justin O'Connor. So Justin, thank you very much for uh, being on the show. Just before hitting record, uh, I mentioned to you that it was about five years ago this week, I think, that uh, you were on my podcast for the first time at the uh, Ashburg Conference in Melbourne. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah, it was five years ago. I think we were both presenting that you were the keynote at that one. Yeah. And I think it, that was a, I had just started my podcast uh, that week, actually. So you, you were one of my very first guests that I had on my, on my show. And you told this amazing story about graffiti and footprints that I, I clearly remember such an amazing story. Um, and that was kind of that theme of the podcast and which led into you sharing the work that you were doing. And I want to revisit that work in this episode. Uh, but before getting there, I just want you to give the listeners some context and, and background. So just talk about early days, uh, who you are, where you're from, you know, anything you want the listeners to know. Sure. So, uh, yeah, look, early days, I grew up in a small country town in the, on the Murray River, which is a river that runs between New South Wales and Victoria and Australia. And spent my youth um, pretty much as a free-range uh, person where I could roam roam the planet, and uh, that involved lots of bike riding and throwing games and crickets and sport and, um, you know, lots of sort of uh, opportunities, I guess, as a young fellow to go out there and, and uh, live a pretty free and open life. And consequently, you know, I, I had a love for sport and a love for um, physical activity and when I did end up um, sort of heading into university, I went into the um, sort of sports science space. Um, and as I was kind of transitioning into my research days, I was quite keen on the idea that, um, you know, how, how could we get more people to, have to enjoy physical activity like I did as a youngster? And I sort of stumbled across an idea that um, maybe there was a kind of way we could support young people to be more physically active and engage in sport um, so they could share my kind of, enjoyment and passion and love for those things. And I kind of, um, I guess I was looking for a shortcut or, or a way to you know, make that transition or that journey easier for people. And I went through, um, I remember distinctly as part of a, I think it was a final year research project, going through all of the coaching books and the shelves in our library. There was no such thing as an online database then, but going through every single coaching book and um, collapsing down the kind of fundamentals of what these coaching books were saying you needed to do. And I, I kind of generated a, a set of fundamental 
kind of motor skills, if you like, out of the back of that. So from all these different sports, what were the, the kind of core skills that were emerging and what were the core things you had to do to achieve those those skills? Quite unbeknownst to me, someone had already talked about fundamental motor skills in another place at another time, but that kind of led me in into my honours year um, where I started to apply this stuff in a schooling context and, and see how long would it take to teach someone a motor skill. And, and then we, when I was doing my PhD, we extended that into school context and tried to see if we could teach fundamental motor skills, surely that's going to lead into sports-specific skills and, and you know, address this competency barrier that, that we sort of see in some of these pyramid diagrams. So that was my kind of start to thinking about, okay, how do we get young people engaged? And, and my solution at that point in time was to focus on greater motor skill ability will then break down those barriers that confront people and lead them into a pathway to participate. And I think I've moved on <laughs> quite some way since then. Um, you know, those, those sort of pyramid models, they're nice models and they look nice and they're, they're rather simplistic. But I think the idea of just um, developing a motor skill competency will then lead young people to then engage in physical activity uh, misses out on a whole host of um, complex interrelated factors that sit across somebody's social ecology. So I think, can, um, can I ask you something right there? Yeah, yeah. Just if we were to backtrack into early days for you and, and how you found a love, as you said, a free range kind of exploration of, of movement. Um, and then you talk about the host of factors that are necessary to bring that type of um, love and, and passion for movement alive. Um, what was present in your life early on um, during that exploration phase of physical activity? Like why is it that you fell in love with physical activity and what conditions were present to allow you to find passion and inspiration through movement? Yeah. So look at my environment played a huge role um, where you live matters. Um, we know that, you know, obesity rates are lower if you live within five kilometers of a beach. So it's, you know, the environment plays a, such a such a crucial role in, in what you get exposed to and what's around you and so therefore what sort of um, ways you interact with that environment to then develop the kind of competencies that lead into feeling comfortable and confident in movement. Um, and I lived opposite an oval. Um, you know, as I walked to school, I'd walk across an oval and we used to use that as a, a, a recreation space. I had a long driveway where I would hone my cricket skills with my older brother and having a brother, siblings, helps in that regard. Um, so we were quite competitive, uh, and we'd play, you know, like epic games in the driveway for hours. Um, my parents were very supportive. My dad coached me in, in cricket and, um, taught me, you know, a whole bunch of stuff about playing sport, um, and supported me. I could walk across the school grounds and play basketball with my friends. Um, we had access to, um, facilities at school. Um, I was male, um, yeah, I, I sort of had a lot of things going for me and um, bike riding was our way to move around the place. I wasn't required to be home at any particular time unless the sort of lights came on in the street. Um, so we spent hours, you know, throwing stones and chasing each other and and doing those things and, and, and running and, and being physically active. So, what was your you know, it was coaching, never a chore. What was your dad's coaching style with you? Um, he was pretty good. Um, he wasn't a... Um, he wasn't hard on me, which probably explains my lack of competitive drive. Uh, he was—he just sort of stepped in and, and gave me some advice when I needed it, um, but relatively hands-off, I guess. Um, I wasn't a very good listener, so I think he was a frustrated coach with me. But, but did he, you know, I think his style, did it resonate with you? And then 
did his style then impact the way that you felt you needed to teach when you became a pre-service teacher? Did you remember that? Yeah. Were, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had, I had my dad for year 10 English as well. <laughs> so he was a, um, he was my teacher in, in class as well. So he, he certainly was a strong role model and um, you know, you, you kind of, you subconsciously pick up a lot from your, your parents. And um, I would say I had a few good coaches along the way, supportive coaches who, um, you know, enabled me to feel confident and capable enough to persist. Um, I remember my basketball coach was quite unique and um, he was very, uh, I guess, caring and nurturing and supportive. And my cricket coach was equally so, and, and he was kind of um, – yeah, gave, gave me confidence. I think was the was the key that I took away from that. And autonomy supportive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, at some point there, my dad said, "I don't think you're ready to play cricket yet." I was too young, and I said, "Well, you know, screw you. I'm going to go over here and play with this other team," which I ended up doing. Um, you know, he was quite shocked by that, but I, I, he still enabled me to have that autonomy to make my own decisions about, you know, do you want to how do you want to take charge of, of your sporting activities? And I played basketball and none of my parents had played basketball. And so they gave me that kind of um, free range, I guess, to pick and choose what I wanted to do. So I certainly had a lot of autonomy and control. Um, and, you know, the social networks that were around me were, were sporty. Um, and there was a level of confidence, I think, from having that kind of opportunity to play um, and opportunities to play in the playground, opportunities to play before school, after school um, with friends, you know, that, that opportunity, which is where, when I think about it, where did I learn those kind of skills that I needed to participate in sport with a degree of confidence? It wasn't in phys ed class. Um, that's not where I, I developed those motor competencies. I developed them in the time before school, during, during playtime, recess, after school with my brother in the backyard you know, we would spend hours honing those kind of skills. And so, so that kind of um, environment played a substantial role in shaping me to enjoy physical activity and sport. And you're quite blind to that, I think. Um, you know, you can go through life and not realise those opportunities that were afforded to you. And therefore, it's easy to say when you see somebody who's not physically active or, or motorically competent, you can quite easily say, well, you know, um, it's your fault or, you know, you made a decision not to be. And so I think we can fall into that trap. And I certainly did as a, as a kind of naive um, researcher and in my PhD, I was thinking it was quite a simplistic linear model that, you know, competency led to participation. Well, you know, when I think of your story, if you were to stitch all of those learning experiences together through your journey, through childhood, through your experience in sport, having autonomy and, and the, the freedom to explore, stitch all of those experiences together along with the mentors that you had into your pre-service teacher days, you came out thinking that it was about how you could develop skills to then give kids uh, the confidence to participate in sport. So now talk about that transition and those aha moments that were like, yeah, maybe this isn't the best way. So what was it that kind of sparked that shift in your thinking? Yeah, so I guess the first one was my PhD was trying to show the, um, the, the kind of transition from fundamental motor skills to sports-specific skills. So we, we trialled in a, a couple of different secondary schools, teaching a group of young people a bunch of motor skills and then looking to see how it impacted those more sports-specific skills. 
And the data, I mean, I, I watched the process and it was, I, I, in my head, I'd imagine this kind of really well-developed um, motor skill program emerging and then, you know, magically they were going to then come out and perform these sports skills at a, at a higher rate. But the reality was quite different. You know, schooling is messy. Um, the classroom is messy. Everybody's at a different level. And so this kind of recipe book approach um, opened my eyes to how complex and, and difficult this process was going to be. Um, and so I think that was the first kind of moment. And, and I sort of transitioned in my early academic career into an education faculty and spent a lot more time in sociology than I had done from a science faculty. And, and in sociology, you start to um, have a much more of a critical, reflective um, way of thinking. And I guess it was that ability to critique uh, that opened my eyes up to the sort of um, complexities that exist within the world and um, got me to question some of the, the simplistic assumptions that I carried through from a, a more linear kind of rigid science-y kind of background that, I, that I've been in. And that kind of uh, enabled me to progress into more complexity thinking or social ecology thinking, thinking about context and environment and opportunities and affordances. And, and I guess that's where I, I kind of transitioned away from this idea of linear you know, models, if we teach motor skill, that will increase mastery, which will increase um, competency, which will then lead to, you know, intrinsic rewards and then and further mastery. I, I see now um, an individual's life is a, is a complex coalescence of a range of interrelated layered factors that will shape and determine and, and um, you yeah, know, evolve into this thing we call sort of lifetime physical activity. Yeah, and that's what I'm most interested in now as I teach, I told you I'm back to teaching for the first time in six years. And um, that's what I'm most interested now and, and really having to let go of a lot of things, you know, and and I think for the past, to be honest, like for the past, you know, between five and eight years, this has been part of my ongoing story as an educator is really trying to think of how I can personalize learning to allow every student to find their own entry point and then build on that entry point, which requires me letting go of certain things. And when I have these discussions with teachers, I mean, all teachers, um, my friend, Dr. M. Beatley says, teaching is so personal, you know, and all teachers have their own narratives and, and their own experiences that they bring with them along their teacher journey. So, speak to what you feel are the conditions necessary now based on the research you've done to really allow kids more entry point and access to movement uh, that allows them to strive to um, want to know more and do more. Yeah. So I I guess it's, um, I kind of flipped the starting position on its head, whereas, you know, previously it was, okay, let's, do physical uh, do motor skill development and, and teach them tactics and then they will find sport and then they will love sport. And I actually think that um, that's the wrong starting point. The starting point is about, as you say, matching the task or the, or the activity to the learner and giving them that entry point that fits their current level of ability, whatever that level of ability is. So we're not trying to lift young people up to a, a sort of a competency proficiency level and then transition into activity. We're letting the activity hook them in and become the thing that they want to do so that they then practice it, which would lead to motor skill competence and all the other stuff. So it's the starting point in the cycle. I think that's crucial here. And um, to engage young people, we have to meet 
young people at, at their level, you know, where they're at. And so, you know, it's called a lot of things. Um, it's called the zone of proximal development. It's called the, the mastery motivational uh, climate. It's called the edge of chaos and complexity stuff. Um, but it's that kind of uh, sweet spot. It's that, that point where uh, a young person is challenged in the activity but not to the point that it's way too hard that they're going to throw their arms up in the air and give up. And it's not so easy that they're going to be bored to death, but it meets them at their level or it matches that ability now, what that means in a, um, a classroom where you might have 25 kind of different different starting points is that we have to get creative with the way we, we construct these activities that we introduce young people to. And I, I think, um, you know, we have to be much smarter at differentiating our activities. What I see a lot in schools is a single game operating, and that game assumes everybody's got the same starting position um, or it just it's, it's played to the mean. And so you have some kids who are highly engaged and, and I think the teacher focuses on them a lot. Um, and then you have the kids who are kind of in there and look busy but not necessarily fully engaged. And then you have the kids who feel marginalised and disenfranchised by that. So I would say that, you know, if you've got more than um, five players in a team, we're probably starting to see some of that um, disenfranchisement happening. If you've got um, the opportunity to have young people determine their own level of intensity when it comes to defence, or if you give young people the opportunity to learn, um, say, a skill at their own level while somebody else is learning at a different level, then I think you're starting to see some of those ideas of differentiation come in and allowing young people to work at a level that matches their ability. And I think um, Kretschmar talks about the slow dance, you know, that that introduction to that build-up. And and we're kind of, um, I I think, also Sidentop talks about inviting young people into this kind of movement subculture so that so it's the movement it's the task it's the activity that's driving the practice not not practicing to become okay at a movement and that that means you also sorry just wanted to ask you one thing there i don't mean to interrupt your flow but it's it's directly related to for example a team sports unit okay and this is what i what i kind of struggle with is that and teachers will run, and I myself have run team sport units in the past in grade four, and I believe in team sports, and I think kids can learn so much through team sport. And I try to differentiate and modify and have small-sided games, but at the end of the day, these kids, you know, the old Andy, myself as a teacher, come hell or high water, the kids had to participate in a 3v3 game or 4v4 game when it was clear that on a team of four or five, two or three of them didn't have the skills necessary to compete. So even not compete, compete is the wrong word to participate. So I had to look at my, the expectations that I was, I was laying out there. Um, But in a team sports unit, if, if, if a teacher is to run a team sports unit, is it possible to have the competent players actually play a game while the other ones develop their skills individually and then try to try to find out, are you ready to jump into this game or not? Um, And then try to have those conversations, but provide them with the support needed to develop their skills to then be able to participate in a game situation or so can you just share your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. There's, there's a couple of ways to do it. This, um, you know, certainly the one size fits all model where everybody plays the one game, I think is the least preferred option out of all of this um, because that just creates uh, an opportunity for those with competence to stand out and be, be 
good and it allows too much room for other people to not engage at all. And so I think that's a model that we really need to kind of put on the put on the um, the pile for quite a while. <laughs> the other way to do it um, is to create three different kinds of games. So rather than um, striving for an elite version of some adult you know game of say volleyball, we might have three versions of that game that we're striving for. And the aim is to progressively move everyone up a continuum, but not necessarily all to the same spot or from the same spot. So when they walk into the gym, what what confronts the learner what do they see do they see um you know an olympic volleyball net set at olympic height with olympic volleyballs with with the line markings for olympic volleyball or do they see uh, a beach ball with a you know a, a low-lying net and something that's much less intimidating and then do we allow young people to have autonomy and choice in that process so which court um do you want to play on that matches your level of ability down this end we've got the high-achieving, fairly competitive, it's going to sting your arms kind of game. Yeah. Um, and down at this end, we've got this thing that kind of, it's kind of volleyball, but it's not not um, going to comply with any of the, the major rules of volleyball. But we've stripped it back. We've removed those kind of unnecessary constraints and we've made it something that resembles volleyball, but it's going to be engaging and fun whilst we've developed those motor skills. So why can't we have three games operating that look quite different but match to the learner's ability? The other way you can do it, is you can, um, again, you need a trusting climate to do this. You need to have worked with the young people and establish, you know, trust and confidence and they need to know the kind of rules around um, uh, how, that, how their behaviour impacts others. But you can up front say, all right, we're going to do a mixed ability. This is going to be a mixed ability activity, so you're going to put you in mixed groups, but you get to have some choice. You get to have some autonomy about the intensity of this experience for you. So, if, for example, you're wearing the um, green armband in this small-sided invasion game, you get three feet, um, no stealing from your hands, right? So you can pass the ball. No one's going to come in and steal it from your hands if you've got the green armband on. If you've got the orange armband on, you get um, you get uh, no three-feet rule, but they, you know, they can't steal it from your hands. If you've got the red armband on, it's it's anything goes. They can try and get it off you however you want. Let the students decide what level of intensity they want in relation to that de- defensive pressure. Uh, and if I choose the green armband, I'm buying myself some extra time, I'm lowering the expectations, I'm decreasing the pressure, and it enables me to, to operate within that particular context. Um, if I've got the red armband on, I'm saying bring the heat, you know, I, I want the challenge. And I, I think when you give young people these kinds of choices, they – operate at a level that suits them you know that they choose the distance from the dartboard that's going to challenge them they don't walk right up to the front of the dartboard and stick it in the middle because it's too easy so we have to kind of trust young people to know their level and to tune into this activity at a level that's going to match their needs and and a good teacher will provide the the opportunities the constraints that will enable um uh, young people to make good good decisions about how hard or, or how technical or how tactical it needs to be so what might assessment look like in that uh, in that so example is, that you just gave yeah. yeah yeah so assessment is progression right it's yeah. not um everybody is going to be at um you know hitting an olympic volleyball from the service line over the net it's going to be how far have you come in this unit across eight weeks so here i was at the start and this is the things i could do at the start these are the things i could tell you these are the things i could show you and over the course of that eight weeks, look at what I can do at the end of this. And what we're expecting is to see growth. So um, on whatever 
you know, measure you want to want to apply there, we're expecting to see improvement. So if I've gone from a, a green armband to an orange armband, I've, I've grown, right? I'm now doing the same things I was doing, but with more pressure. Um, if I've got some um, video footage of me engaging at this in this sort of lower level game at the start of the unit, but now I'm playing in the middle court, um, that's progression, okay? So I've been able to demonstrate some improvement in competency and I can feel confident. If I can describe my feelings, around this notion of kind of competence and, and uh, capability, if I, if I can describe the elements that I'm now um, being able to think about whilst playing, you know, before I knew this much, now I know this much. Mm-hmm. So we can do mind maps um, yeah. to capture some of that stuff. And, um, you know, we can use that kind of rich description that young people are capable of if we, if we allow them the opportunity to drag that out and get them to showcase their own learning, I think is, is really crucial with assessment. So rather than having to run complex kind of teacher assessments, the young people are journaling their growth over time um, and we give them the tools to do that. Yeah, and that's... It's a bit like your your unit with the bikes, the bike riding, you know. Um, You would have had kids who could barely ride in a straight line at the start. By the end of it, they would be riding confidently on a straight line. So that's just the pre-post photograph. Um, yeah. you know, a pre-post video or a, a story about how I couldn't ride on the line to start with and now I can. Yeah. And you just gave so many different examples of assessment options there rather than um, teachers being caught up in checklists and, and you must go from point A to point C in this unit and everybody is expected to do the same thing. And those that don't reach C are considered to be the lowest in the class and that their mark reflects that. Now, my question is, in the volleyball example, when you got beach ball down in the far far end of the gym and then you have Olympic, you know, the, what did you say, the, the arm-stinging volleyball <laughs> on, yes. on, the, on the far side. Um, yeah. What if that, that student chooses to stay in the beach ball version of the game? They have showed progression. So maybe at the first, at the start, they had no control over, like, bumping or volleying. The ball was going all over the place but they chose to stay in there by the end. They, they were bumping with more control. They were serving with more okay. control, but they chose to stay there. There is nothing yeah, wrong with I, them not moving up. No, no, yeah. no, no. And, and I would suspect that, you know, after, I would suspect after a few weeks, they would all voluntarily want to ditch the beach ball. Yeah. You know, it's a bit like a surfer who starts out in the foamy waves um, and they start surfing in the, the kind of really low level waves. They can't wait to push up to the bigger wave. We all yeah. want to. We all want to progress, right? Yeah. Um, but we want to progress when we're ready. It's a bit like uh, kids on a jump. They'll, they'll jump the little jump for a while, but after a while, they get sick of the little jump. They want to move to the bigger jump. So my my um, uh, thinking here is that most kids will want to progress away from the beach ball yeah. pretty quickly and probably too quickly in many cases. Um, and so that's the teacher's job is to facilitate that progression. And, and if somebody needs a push to give them a bit of a nudge, say, I reckon you could probably give that a go. You, you seem to be, you know, coping really well. Um, or if the job is to say, well, why don't you step back here and have another crack at this for a bit and then you can move up, see yeah. how that goes. That's the kind of the role of the teachers to facilitate that progression. But it doesn't mean everybody has to progress at the same rate. And, and so I think what you're talking about is the idea that, um, if we're showing growth, right, if I can demonstrate that things are getting better, then that we're learning something. And, and the aim of education or physical education in schools is to learn something, should be the focus. So long as we are progressing and showing that growth, 
then it doesn't bother me whether or not we're playing a fairly heavily modified version of that game or something that looks like the Olympics. Um, I think you've got to have that continuum. Um, and once the, you know, once, and if you think of, um, it's a bit like universal design for learning here. So if you think of your edges of your classroom, then you're catering for the very edges of your classroom. You're not looking at the mean, you're looking at what's at that end and what's at this end. And you're creating a game for both of those players, right? If that makes sense. Yeah. So when you think about the kind of rules or the constraints you want to modify, you're thinking about modifying the constraints for the child who's way up that end and for the one who's way down that end. And then both, whatever version you come up with, has to accommodate both. So the progression or the movement of that activity will, will cater for wherever those two points are. Which means that when we set up stations, then we need to consider that as well to have some yes. variation at the station each of the stations uh, at least that's what we're trying to do here uh, with grade one in particular we do a lot of station work with grade one and then we try to um, show modifications at each station so that yeah. each, and and each station is working on a different thing rather than just a you must do this at this station we're still trying to yeah. modify yeah that's right. And, and choice of equipment, space, distance, timing, speed, all that stuff becomes really important. And if you want to differentiate, even within kind of more complicated team games, having individual challenges to, to complete, um, you know, it may be that I'm fairly competent in my team. And so I am going to be challenged by supporting others to develop X or Y. And so the challenge for me is to lift in, in, in a different area, or I might want to work on a you know, a particular weakness I have by focusing on that in the game. Um, so this idea of kind of individual challenge, um, challenge points and the opportunity, give them the opportunity to showcase their growth by achieving challenges um, is another way we can kind of differentiate within these, these activities. And, you know, you could imagine, um, I mean, computer, computer games do this very, very well. You know, they, they have levels um, that cater for a huge range of ability. So you can drop into this thing and be challenged at an optimal level. Um, and so in your, in your stations, you've got the same setup. You've got that kind of, you know, most often in differentiation, three or four levels is enough. Three or four yeah. versions of a challenge is, is plenty to cover your edges of your classroom. So so long as you can cover, you know, I, I think of a rule of three. You've got three options, um, three choices of equipment, three choices of timing, three choices of, of distance, you know, fast, medium, slow, um, they're the kinds of things that we can manipulate to allow young people to be have the task match where they're at right now or their current ability. Which, which are the constraints? You know, if you put too much out there, you know, I had Dr. Richard Ryan on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, developer of the self-determination theory, and he talked about this idea, you need constraints, otherwise it's chaos. So by yeah. keeping it to three options or four at the most, as you say, there is still option and choice in there, but there's still constraint. You know, if Correct. you can only yeah. pick one of three pieces of equipment rather than empty out the storage uh, cupboard with everything. And I've seen that before. Right. And I've seen teachers yeah. say, oh, well, this is free choice. And I'm going, uh, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. I don't No, look, like I, that. I, I shiver whenever I hear anyone say, um, you know, this is student ownership <laughs> because it often ends in just complete chaos and breakdown. So teachers are actually incredibly active in this process and they're thinking all the time about, you know, their role in the modification and the selection of these choices. And, 
you have to know your learners. You've got to know, you know, who they are and, and, and what they're capable of and where they're from and allow them some choice but facilitate that choice and um, structure that choice and then guide and prompt and, and um, support is super important. You can't have a free-for-all and this is – I definitely don't advocate um, opening the thing up for unlimited – you know, oh, here's a game. You go and you go and decide what you want to do. Um, even in a games making unit, there's a lot of structure and a lot of um, teacher direction. Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to move into that idea of the environment. And um, you know, over the years, I'm sure you've seen this a lot. I've seen it. I've heard people talk about it. But it's this idea that um, a lot of PE programs are just based on traditional PE units because that's the way PE has always been done. But you said, hit upon something when you talked about that um, diving into sociology more and learning about the environment and the impact of the environment on learning and how that started to shift your thinking. So what is your advice to um, PE departments, um, PE teachers listening to this, administrators listening to this, who might better explore the environment that the school is, you know, the culture, the environment that the school yep. is located in, and then designing a PE program around that rather than just these are your six traditional units because we know that that doesn't really work so well. So just share your thoughts about that and any research you've done in that area. Yeah, so I, I guess for me, um, the thing where the learning happens is in practice, right? So um we have to practice to get better at, at, at things. And so when we think about the opportunities to practice um, that young people have in a movement sense, we have to think not just about the time that happens in the, in the phys ed program. And one of the, the big mistakes is this sort of raging desire within a 40-minute um, or hour-and-a-half phys ed class to hit a certain level of moderate, vigorous physical activity, like, like that's the only place in the world where they're ever going to get it. Instead of thinking about young people's lives – the before school, the during school, the playtime, the recess, the after school, the weekends, you know, instead of thinking about the whole um, big picture, we kind of focus in on, oh, here's phys ed time, I need to do this in this time, otherwise nothing else will happen. So um, if we can move away from that idea that, um, you know, we put a, a sort of a hard border around PE and start thinking about the wider context that these young people are engaging movement in, it opens up a lot of possibilities for us and we start to make connections between physical education and the lives of these young people. So life wide um, and lifelong. And so if we want to have um, young people learn in, in movement and um, get better at movement and enjoy movement, they need to have those opportunities to practice. So if we set up a scenario in PE where it's highly unlikely that they're ever going to engage in this activity outside of physical education, then that's what we're limited to in terms of their opportunities to practice. But if we do a much better job of linking into their environments, to their communities, to their before school, after school, to their interests, you know, um, we make it, um, you know, this idea of relatedness. Um, what does it mean um, for you in this place, in this time with these people? And so um, we have to think about physical education as sort of connecting those dots across a young person's life. And that means looking at the communities in which you're teaching in, looking at the spaces that they've got available to them, what are the spaces in the playground, who has access to them, who doesn't, um, doing an audit of the kind of opportunities for rehearsal and practice that we might have before school, are the, are the gym spaces open? So if I do teach this unit of badminton, 
what's the opportunity they're going to have to practice it outside of the time they're with me? You know, when are they going to get to have a go at this? Can they go in there before school and play badminton? Can they play in there after school? If not, um, then we're just posing a whole bunch of barriers to them um, developing this and learning this. So I'm a really big advocate of, of starting to consider um, what's available to us around here. What are the things, kinds of activities that, that young people are going to engage in if I introduce them to here in PE outside of PE class? How can we get these things happening before school, at lunchtime, at recess, um, after school, on the weekends? And how do we tap into that as a source of, um, you know, repetition practice and et cetera? So, yeah, one of the, I guess, one of the programs we ran in a school which was um, in many ways successful, in many ways really tricky um, for teachers to wrap their head around was we got the students to audit their own school grounds and, and identify all the places in, within that school ground that they could be physically active and they did a mapping exercise. So they sort of mapped it and said, oh, you can't play ball games here because you get in trouble. Um, you know, you, you're not allowed, we don't use the oval because it's so big and vast. Um, we like to play here and, and the year sixes won't let us on the basketball courts here. So they kind of created a fairly detailed map of where physical activity was possible in their school grounds. And then we did the same thing within their community. So we looked at a sort of five-kilometre radius around where they lived and they talked about the possibilities. And from that, they got... So rather than sort of create artificial groups, they talked about the, the things that they might want to do more of. So what are the kinds of physical activities you would like to learn about and do more of? And we had a we had some kids wanting to do more soccer. We had some wanting to do some dance. We had some wanting to do – so they kind of came up with these really innovative um, things that they wanted to learn more about. Now that could – that exercise in itself could then form a, a kind of – uh, co-constructed planning tool for your sequence of activities that you're going to undertake in, in phys ed. So you could stop there and say, all right, here are the things our young people speak to us about wanting to do more of and getting better at. This relates to their lives. You know, we've, we've audited their spaces and we know it's possible. And now we're going to design a program that will facilitate that. And so you might work your way through a series of kind of common activities that resonated with the young people well, alternately, um, as we did in this program, we got them to um, develop a bit of an advocacy. What, what, what was stopping them from doing more and how could they do more about it? So they took on this role of, of you know, well, get rid of this stupid rule that won't let us play ball games here and we'll play more ball games, right? Um, let's change the oval from being this vast green space to dividing it up into smaller spaces with some line markings so we can play three aside. So things like that, um, and that, they were quite sophisticated in the in the the things they recognise they need in their environment to support them to be physically active. Access to equipment was one of the ones. Access to the school school um, facilities before school and after school. There was kids who wanted to play badminton but couldn't um, because they couldn't get access. And also um, who controlled the spaces. So there was a lot of uh, older kids who bullied the younger kids away from the basketball courts. So they came up with a rotation system and enabled them to play more, more sport during the day. And we, we were able to argue on the back of that that by um, focusing on the time outside of phys ed, we actually increased total moderate vigorous physical activity because they spent more time doing activity for the rest of the week, not just in the 40 minutes of phys ed class. And what, what Dr. Ryan said in the podcast that I recorded with him was this idea of when we create these conditions of autonomy, relatedness, and competence, and three fundamental human needs that that has a direct impact on well-being, right? And, and that's the, the key here. So the process that you just described 
hit all those, all three of those needs, which then you would hope leads to greater well-being, collective well-being and individual well-being of the students. So there's, there's a lot of other things happening through this process aside from physical activity that are important to understand. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we've done some work on um, mental wellness in sport over here. And, yeah, the research is pretty clear. If you feel like you belong, if you feel part of something and you've got an identity that fits within that and that notion of belonging, then, you know, the impact on mental well-being is really significant. And um, that idea of kind of relatedness um, is super important in that. And then having some autonomy in that process is really important. Probably more important than um, if the conditions are right, then the kind of competency, technical, tactical stuff. You know, if I feel like I belong, I feel like I'm being supported, I feel like um, I have some control, then uh, that's going to lead me to want to improve my competence and be motivated to do that anyway. So, yeah, I think those conditions are really important and, and having that supportive social context to do physical activity in a way that I feel safe and comfortable um, but I can, I can be appropriately challenged is the sort of the holy grail, isn't it? It's, it's the thing we're trying to unlock. And I, I completely support the idea of, you know, self-determination theory and that idea of competence um, related to autonomy. I think they're so important um, and fit very nicely in the work that I talk about. And I just want to segue into, and you and I have had this discussion in the past and you, you wrote a great blog post on fitness testing. Um, you've written several blog posts, but do you know the fitness testing blog post I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so um, without just for the sake of time, you know, I just want to touch upon fitness testing. I'd love to have you back on the show. I'm, I'm planning on holding future episodes where I bring multiple researchers in, and practitioners into roundtable discussions. My friend Jorge Rodriguez from the VoxCast, uh, you've been on his show. He's really doing a lot of that right now, which is awesome. You know, and it's bringing... A practitioner voice to the table, researcher voice to the table, which is so important. But just um, kind of take a little, just dip your toes in right now. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, with with fitness testing and um, what it is you, I don't want to say believe in, but um, what the evidence shows and what you would like teachers to consider when it comes to a health-related fitness unit and fitness testing in general. All right, so there's, there's many things we could talk about here. Um, one of those is the validity of uh, adult fitness tests on young people anyway. <laughs> so are you actually testing fitness or are you testing something else like motivation or, um, you know, willpower or something else? But anyway, that aside, um, if you take it like a, often a typical model of fitness testing might be one kind of one session where we test all the fitness components all at once. We run them through a beat test or a multi-stage fitness test. We run them through sit-ups and push-ups and they do an agility test and whatever else. We collect all the data and then at some point we, we may report that. Um, we might put up a league table or we might just keep it to ourselves and um, rarely do we ever give all that information back to the learner, A, because there's too much information for them to deal with, um, but B, it seems like we fitness test for the sake of fitness testing. Um, and I would, the first question I'd ask is, what's the educative purpose? Why, what are they learning as a result of doing this? And if they haven't been given the opportunity to then go and do anything about those fitness test scores, then I'm, I'm just questioning whether or not that's at all educative. Um, I don't see an educative purpose or a focus. If um, 
if young people decided that they would like to do um, maybe, I don't know, a, a jogging club, for example, and start a jogging club and they wanted to know where they're at now and then be able to compare it down the track, I would have no problem at all with them introducing some fitness test things that they had control of and that they could use the information from. And I, I would more than happily support them to collect that data and I'd give them the tools and, and, and et cetera. And they could then go away and log their journey, you know, and, and use some form of assessment to do that. But when it's mass testing for the sake of testing with no real educative purpose, if, if nothing else other than to report, which is flawed because of the validity of the test in the first place, then I really do question, um, you know, the model or the structure of fitness testing. So there, so that to me is highly problematic and starts to position young people as passive objects that are being tested for the sake of testing and we're taking away that autonomy. Um, we're doing it in an uncomfortable social context and we're highlighting standards of competence um, that may or may not hold up as, as telling us anything useful. So that's probably... Um, that's just that's just that's just a couple toes in the in the water there, which is which is perfect <laughs> for this episode. But I guess one of the things that I I get a bit triggered, and I, I I find myself being judgmental, and I hate that. You know, I hate when I'm I've, I'm judging another teacher based on my beliefs, and I find sometimes, uh, despite having twenty years, you know, more than twenty years of experience in the field, I. I find myself sometimes doing that. And I am not so proud of myself when I do that, but I do see things on social media sometimes that just trigger me. And I'll see, for example, you know, a teacher videoing a, their class, watching a video of another teacher doing warmups. I will see a teacher videoing their class with like the last one I saw was a pumpkin timer because it's Halloween, a pumpkin timer on the screen. And then on one half of the screen, great, call it differentiation, whatever you want to call it. But on one half of the screen, it's burpees. And on the other half, it's plank. And then the, the pumpkin starts at 60 or 30 and goes down to zero. And then you can see the kids can choose which one they want to do, but they have to go through this rigorous warm-up. Um, which I just don't understand, you know, no, so when, see, I catch, see, yeah, when I catch myself being triggered, I have to take a step back. I have to take a deep breath and I have to say the teacher is well-intentioned. You know, I, I, I can say the teacher is well-intentioned. They, they feel that they're doing what is best for the kids. So I don't have a right to judge that, but why is it triggering me, Justin? Maybe I'll just leave it to you to tell me that. <laughs> Uh, look, I, I think I triggered half the internet when I had a crack at one of these things. And, and the way I had a crack at it was just to ask a question. What's the educative purpose? What are they learning? And when you ask that question, it's a really hard one to answer because, um, you know, that yes, they might be learning how to do a burpee or a sit-up, but what's the end game, right? How's that going to apply to them in 5, 10, 15 years or in their, in their before and after school lives? And really I see some of that kind of tech stuff um, as, as being – um, old wine in new bottles. <laughs> um, we're tricking them into doing physical activity by using fancy pictures and, and, and motivational cues with and pumpkins. timers and pumpkins. So we, we put a superhero in a costume and we say, look, um, you know, the Avengers do this. You should do burpees as well. But burpees um, are only meaningful if they relate to someone's lives in a bigger way, you know, if they, they centre around an identity or if they contribute to some sort of formation of who I am in this world. 
And um, doing physical activity for the sake of doing physical activity to meet some MVPA kind of target, which seems to be the goal of these things, is to keep, you know, 60% of moderate vigorous physical activity time for this particular lesson, I just think is a, is a flawed, um, flawed educational process. I mean, we're talking about physical education. It's in a school. Surely the goal has to be we need to learn as a result of doing this. And we have to be really clear about what our learning intention is so that if we can articulate through doing this X activity, what young people will learn to A, B, and C, and you can justify that and you can demonstrate that, then, okay, great. Um, you know, there might be a rationale for this. But if we're doing it because we need to do physical activity, then it's a flawed logic because we're not creating lifelong, life-wide physical activity in this, this setting. We take away the, the fancy video, you take away the superhero, what's the odds that these kids are going to transition this into their real worlds? Um, and so it's a kind of false, it's a false reality, it's a false hope, it's a, it's a really um, time-consuming um, busyness. It's, it's what I think of as busy, happy, good. The kids are compliant, the task is pretty straightforward, everybody's doing it like robots, and then, um, you know, I can tick off a goal that I've, I've got kids active but if we're trying to help young people learn how to incorporate physical activity for the rest of their lives and in the current lives, it's probably not the best strategy because once you take away that fancy video in the social context, it's unlikely young kids are going to go out and do random burpees for the sake of it. Um, you know, there, there has to be something else meaningful about it. So, yeah, I, I think you're getting triggered um, because you see it as a missed opportunity. It's, it's a, um, it's time we could have spent doing something far more educative. Um, and if that was the young people having some sort of co-construction of a fitness session, designing their own activities and, and creating their own motives for it. So be it um, as much as that might be flawed, um, but at least it's got something educative about it. Which might mean, as you say, the co-constructed pieces, if you get four kids in the class that want to play high intensity 2v2 basketball, they are certainly working on cardiovascular, uh, you know, fitness, right? So, so yep. you think about the ways that you're offering choice is, I guess, the yeah. message here, right? So, yeah, um, and look at what works in yeah, look at what works in the real world. I mean, um, I look at something like parkrun as a phenomenon that's kind of spread around the, the globe and. You know, people flock to these places, but they've got, you know, legitimate real choice about how they're going to engage and involve, not a choice between sort of burpees and sit-ups, but it's a choice about, um, you know, today, what, what do I want to achieve here? And you can, you can do that as a, a volunteer. You don't have to run. You can walk. You can walk with a friend. You can run with a friend. You can go flat out. You can go for a PB. Uh, but you get that kind of control and autonomy, but you're with others who are all doing the same thing. So you have that social reinforcement and obviously there's an element of competence but the competence is matched to the task so you know that's what works for people people love that and they engage with that for some reason it's just running like it's not the most exciting thing but it's that sort of social element that vibe and i can see some of that in these um digital kind of creations but i just don't i struggle to see how that's going to be sustainable or sustaining as a form of activity so why can't we just pivot yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that hard to pivot the concept of what we're doing in this, these socially constructed activity classes to build it something more around um, something that resonates with the real world and, and people's, people's ongoing realities. And so, yes, it's kind of like an aerobics class to a degree, but where are we, where's the learning? Where are we learning about um, you know, how are we doing aerobics? And, and, and that's the bit that 
doesn't get unpacked in this. It's, there's no educational unpacking. So I, I don't know what people learn as a, as a result. Which, which can sometimes be um, also, one. I think, one of the reasons might be very rigid understanding of what a learning outcome is. So a learning outcome um, must mean this. So therefore, that's why I do this. And I think the response on uh, social media, sometimes if you ask what is the educative purpose, it's because I have to meet this outcome. Therefore, this activity. So it's a rigid understanding of, of outcomes. Yeah. So just to segue into the last part of the show, what do you have to say about that interpretation of outcomes and um, any advice for teachers when it comes to looking at outcomes and to look at them with, with more flexibility? Yeah, I think, um, I think curriculum documents or policy documents are there to be shaped and built by the, by the teachers. The teachers are the professionals, right? So the, when you think about a curriculum document or a policy document that says here are, the, here are the kind of statewide or national outcomes we need to achieve, they've been put together by a bunch of contested um, positions. So you've got the medical profession having a dip, you've got the, um, the educators having a crack, you've got people interested in outdoor education putting their two bobs worth in, you've got environmentalists having a say. So curriculums are constructed by, they're like political parties, they're constructed by multiple kind of ideas that coalesce and somebody has to put it together and they often end up as quite messy not coherent documents because they've come from this uncoherent space and then um, it's up to the professional the teacher to interpret that and so no curriculum document is fixed once it's printed it's it's not saying this is the solution or the answer so they are living breathing modifiable contestable things okay and so teachers have a really, really important role in interpreting and enacting policy documents. They are the ones who are the, the professionals who know their learners best. Like the people who wrote that document don't know your learners. And so um, as someone who knows your learners and knows um, you know, their lives and what they're trying to develop in terms of this progression through this, this policy document, it's up to you to shape um, that experience. It's up to you to interpret that outcome and then shape that experience so that your young people you work with can show growth and they can show improvement and they can feel confident from that and they can progress and develop. And that's the thing I often see. I mean, if you looked at the Australian curriculum document, you won't find the word fitness test in there. You won't find beat tests. <laughs> like it doesn't exist, yet everyone does one. So I think some of these things are more cultural than they are policy. Um, they seem to be done because that's what other people do or I saw it on Twitter or whatever. Um, but we have to sort of, I think the first question I'd ask myself when it comes to an outcome is what, what are we learning and why is it important? And, and what is it, how can I relate that or how is it related to my learners and their learning and what would they think of it? So, you know, tune into what's, what your learners will relate to, that kind of hook. You know, what's the hook? What's the benefit? What's the outcome? Why would I care? Um, why do I need this skill? Why do I need this to develop this? And then build your learning intentions around um, that, starting from the learner perspective. So up the top, you've got your policy document. You know your learners. You've got to come together in some sort of space in the middle here, and I think that's the key. And do you think they have to meet every single outcome in that document? Oh, look, as I said, they're complex, messy documents and um, can be interpreted in, in many ways. And so I, I think you would be doing, uh, look, over 
maybe over a 12-year period, but certainly not in, you know, in your one year of phys ed classes. So think about it as a big picture, holistic kind of document that you're working towards um, and that there are progression points along the way. And, you know, one of the other problems we've got is we don't join up primary to secondary physical education and then we don't really do a good job of joining up one year to the next. So what one experience is like in one year doesn't necessarily feed on and build up in it in the next year. So I think we've got issues when it comes to kind of the planning side of, of curriculum. And I think these policy documents are useful and they're helpful. Um, some are skewed towards medical and, and where schools are seen as um, places for intervention to, to treat some sort of illness or disease like obesity or um you know, heart disease, um, which I think is flawed. I don't think schools are places where uh, we should be doing medicine or interventions. Um, I think schools are places where we should focus on learning um, and and learning to be, you know, physically active, lifelong, um, engages in movement. Great. Yeah, that's really good advice. And um, so the last part of the show, Justin, before we conclude, I just want to ask you, like, it's been so crazy over the past seven months with the pandemic and uh, this is a question that I asked some of my guests, but um, what has kind of kept you going and kind of kept you inspired during this time? And what have you struggled with? And just anything you want to share about the pandemic and the impact it's had on you and how you've tried to stay centered and moving forward during this difficult time. Yeah, it's been crazy. We've been in a hard lockdown now for, well, I haven't had a haircut, I think for... It was like six months, <laughs> um, but we haven't been allowed to move more than 5K for at least, um, I think it's been two or three months. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a crazy time. And I guess for me, it feels like Groundhog Day. So you wake up, you, you sit at your desk, you go to bed. It feels like the same. there's a, such a sameness to every day that it, it does um, drive you a bit insane. But I guess what keeps me going is working with good people and, and um, still keeping networks alive. Like the social connection is so important. Um, I did happen to get a, a, a dog, <laughs> a puppy, which was just before it started, which was a godsend because okay. um, that certainly helped. And, uh, yeah, I think just staying in touch and, and connecting and communicating means that I've been able to um, keep things ticking along. And I think if you have some small wins in, in your, you know, either that's work or family life or whatever else, then it gives you that kind of progress that you need to keep marching forward. So, um, yeah, I've been able to get a, quite a lot done um, professionally, which is helpful. So it means you kind of feel like you're moving forwards, I guess, um, and not stuck in a in a hole. So that's kind of worked for me, I guess. Okay, great. And Justin, where can people find you on social media? Um, you can tune into me on Twitter at uh, Justin O'Connor. Now it's J U S T E N O C O N N O R. My parents um, were teachers, and they couldn't think of a name for me. That they hadn't thought someone who had already had that name that they, they didn't want. Like. So in there. They decided, yeah, J U S T E N. Yeah. So, yeah, follow me on Twitter and, and then you'll get the links to all the other places, the blog spot and, and other things. So. Okay, great. Well, you know, this is just a one conversation among many future, I hope. And as I said, I definitely want to have you on the show with some other researchers to to just share our, our thoughts around different topics related to our profession. So, yeah. Thank you very much for your time, Justin. Just stay on the line. I'm going to close out the show. But everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Justin O'Connor. And I hope you come back with us in the future episodes.
listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily.